Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is your host, Megan Nelson. I'm currently a pediatric resident here at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Today, we will be discussing common causes of overuse injuries that can lead to chronic joint pain in children and adolescents with Dr. Lauren Newhall, who is a pediatrician here in the Department of Pediatrics at MCG. Thanks, Megan. This is an important topic that a general pediatrician may encounter frequently in his or her office, so it's important to recognize signs and symptoms of an overuse injury and understand the management. Especially problematic is year-round single sport. There is an increasing trend towards early specialization that makes particular overuse injuries more common. Dr. Newhall, let's talk first about what we mean by overuse injuries. Sure. Overuse injuries are a result of repetitive microtrauma that exceeds the body's ability to repair itself. Muscles, tendons, bones, bursa, cartilage, and nerves can all be affected. Children and adolescents are especially susceptible to overuse injuries during periods of rapid growth and open growth plates. Overuse injuries are common in all sports, but more often seen with any sport where there is repetitive motion. Dr. Newhall, what can be done in general to prevent overuse injuries during the season? The American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine has great resources online regarding injury prevention for sports that have the highest rates of overuse and trauma injuries. In general, prevention of overuse and chronic injuries in youth sports include getting a preseason health evaluation to identify any concerns that may lead to an overuse injury. Proper warm-up and cool-down should be routine to prepare the body to recover afterwards. Encourage the athlete to play different positions or sports throughout the year to minimize the risk of overuse injury. Talking with the athlete about the importance of avoiding playing through any pain they are experiencing as it can make an injury worse and lead to shortened seasons. It's also important to incorporate days off each week during the season and taking at least a couple months off per year. Athletes should also delay sports specialization until later in puberty. As a pediatrician, we should encourage coaches, athletes, and parents to support established guidelines to prevent permanent, short, and long-term disability. Let's review some common overuse injuries in children and adolescents that you may see in your clinic. We will begin with a clinical case. A 10-year-old male comes to clinic complaining of worsening right elbow pain over the past few weeks. He plays youth baseball and feels that the pain is worse after practice and games. At home, he is using ibuprofen and has been icing with minimal improvement. On exam, there is some mild swelling and tenderness over the medial aspect of the right elbow, along with some limitation of flexion in the right elbow compared to the left. Otherwise, the remainder of his exam is normal. Chronic overuse injuries of the elbow are often associated with those sports that involve a repetitive throwing action or require a repetitive wrist flexion or extension like baseball. This type of injury also occurs with activity associated with weight-bearing on the hands, such as gymnastics. The term little league elbow is used to describe this type of overuse injury. Like the child in the case, kids will present with pain and tenderness over the medial portion of their elbow. This type of overuse injury is often associated with poor technique or excess number of pitches. Treatment includes rest from throwing for at least four to six weeks, pain-free strengthening, and stretching a flexor pronator group of muscles. It should be followed by one to two weeks of progressive functional throwing regimen and rehabilitation. The amount of stress from throwing a baseball is especially concerning in growing children. The stress from this repetitive motion is absorbed at the cartilage of the ends of the bone or the growth plate. This can lead to long-term consequences to both the shoulder and the elbow. Megan, why don't you take a moment to describe the growth plate? Sure. The growth plate is simply the growing tissue near the ends of the long bones in children and adolescents. Growth plates close when the skeleton reaches maturity and the bones stop growing. That's correct. The issue is that the area of the growth plate is not as strong as the bone, ligaments, or tendons. 
When there is excessive strain and stress for any young athlete involved in repetitive training, such as continuous throwing of baseball pitches, the cartilage of the growth plate has difficulty tolerating the excess stress. The cartilage of the joint also has the risk of being permanently damaged if there's continual stress. Therefore, identifying elbow, arm, or shoulder pain in young baseball players as early as possible is vital. Is there anything that can be done to prevent these types of injuries? There are things that can be done to reduce the risk of injury. This includes limiting the number of pitches and days of pitching. Major League Baseball has established age-specific guidelines that can be found on their website. It is also important to educate patients and parents that they should stop the activity immediately if they do experience elbow pain. If the pain persists, the patient should be seen for a medical evaluation. Thanks, Dr. Newhall. Let's move on to another clinical case. A 15-year-old boy is being evaluated for knee pain that has been occurring for several years. He runs track and field for his high school team, but does not recall experiencing any trauma. He denies any fevers, swelling of his joints, or skin changes. On exam, he has tenderness over the anterior aspect of both knees. He has limitation with extension, but the remainder of his exam is normal. Let's first talk about the knee. Knee pain in general is a common complaint among adolescents. Most often, knee pain is associated with some type of trauma, but can also be insidious. The knee is the largest joint in the body, which allows a hinge-type motion with some element of rotation. The knee consists of an intermediate joint between the patella and the femur and lateral medial joint surfaces between the femoral and tibial condyles. Without proper treatment of pediatric knee injuries, chronic knee problems, arthritis, further injury to surrounding tissues, and prolonged healing can occur. Recurrent damage to the cartilage will cause pain and an increase of chronic instability of the knee due to the damage to the ligaments. So Megan, what's your differential for the case you just presented? Well, first of all, the child participates in track and field, which makes me think of athletes who do a lot of running and jumping. That repetitive motion puts these athletes at risk of an overuse injury to the knee. Possible causes include bursitis, which is inflammation of the small sacs of fluid that cushion and lubricate the knee. We can also consider tendonitis, which is just inflammation of the tendons. The patient has pain over the front of the knee, which also makes me think of patellofemoral pain syndrome and Osgood-Schlatter disease. That's right, Megan. A common form of chronic joint pain in adolescents is patellofemoral stress syndrome, or PFSS. PFSS tends to have a female predominance, and patients may often describe diffuse anterior knee pain. Patients may also complain of bilateral pain that worsens when going upstairs. This type of repetitive bending while going up and down causes the pain due to weakness or imbalance of muscles, primarily the quadriceps and glutes. That makes sense. How should we approach the physical exam for these patients? When performing a physical exam, it's important to observe the patient's lower limb alignment and musculature. Pay careful attention to weakness in the medial muscles. With this, hamstrings can become very tight. This give and take of the muscles causes a lot of stress over the front portion of the knee and causes irritation of the cartilage under the kneecap. There may be point medial patellar tenderness or pain with compression of the patellofemoral joint. There shouldn't be the presence of joint effusion, and usually you'll have no other positive findings. Clinical diagnosis can be accomplished without imaging. When discussing treatment, you should emphasize restoring flexibility, strength, and improving any gait abnormalities. Treatment includes scheduled anti-inflammatory medications to help get the patient over the initial pain. That can be challenging for runners. Should we refer to physical therapy? Physical therapy is helpful. You can recommend formal physical therapy or informal therapy at home. Essentially, what needs to be done is the strengthening of the medial muscle of the quadriceps. Have them lay flat on the floor and do straight leg lifts with their legs slightly turned outwards to help strengthen that muscle. Simple hamstring stretches are also helpful. It's also important to strengthen the hip abductors or the glutes. Patients with weak hip muscles tend to have valgus or inward collapse at the knee, which predisposes to patellar-related pain, as well as other injuries. When can these patients return back to activity? 
you should recommend rest from the activity that is aggravating the pain for at least one to two weeks. In children with patellofemoral syndrome, it's important to remind parents that this may require continual work. Even if the knee feels better and the child feels that they're able to get back to regular activity, it still doesn't mean that this pain won't come back again. The patient should keep up with exercises and stretches to prevent worsening symptoms. It's important to know that some people are anatomically at risk for patellofemoral pain. If symptoms are chronic and fail conservative treatment, referral to an orthopedic surgeon is appropriate. That's good to know. Another form of anterior knee pain that we encounter in the clinic is Osgood-Schlatter disease. Yes, Osgood-Schlatter disease is a type of apophysitis and is a common cause of knee pain in growing adolescents. However, before we discuss Osgood-Schlatter, Megan, why don't you give us an overview of the general term for apophysitis? Sure. Apophysitis is commonly seen in active, growing children and adolescents. It refers to inflammation around the insertion point of a tendon adjacent to areas of growth. There are several types of apophysitis most commonly observed during periods of rapid growth. That's right. Osgood-Schlatter disease is one of the most common causes of apophysitis, most often seen in adolescent males. These kids will present with anterior knee pain over the tibial tuberosity. Again, think about your runners and your jumpers, basketball players, gymnasts, and soccer players. They will describe point knee tenderness with running and jumping activities. On physical exam, you will often see a bony prominence over the tibial tuberosity where repeated injury or overuse has caused overgrowth in that area. Basically, you'll see a big knob below their anterior knee. One thing to remember is that Osgood-Schlatter isn't always painful and can coexist with other conditions. Be careful not to miss other diagnoses by assuming Osgood-Schlatter is the primary culprit. In regards to imaging, you could get an x-ray. For Osgood-Schlatter, you'll see a widening of the epiphysis or a prominent bony overgrowth. But remember that you really don't need the x-ray for diagnosis if you have a compelling clinical history and exam. Let's keep moving down from the knee and talk about shin splints, also known as medial tibial stress syndrome. Shin splints are one of the most common overuse injuries of the lower leg. It is especially common in runners. The pain occurs with activity, often towards the end of a period of exercise. Shin splints may progress to a tibial stress fracture without rehabilitation and can be distinguished due to more focal or severe tenderness that occurs during the entire workout. Diagnosis can be made by history and physical exam. Usually on exam, there is diffuse tenderness over the lower third to half of the distal medial tibia. Any focal tenderness or tenderness of the proximal tibia is suspicious for a stress fracture. Management and treatment for both shin splints and tibial stress fractures is similar. This includes rest at least 7 to 10 days before commencing exercises. Stress fractures need longer recovery period, up to 6 weeks. Again, this is very challenging to an avid runner. Scheduled anti-inflammatory medications are also recommended. Correcting technique that led to the shin splints is important as it can lead to gait disturbances. Orthotics, shoe inserts, heel cups are simple ways to prevent overuse injury. Do we need to get imaging for this type of injury? Plain x-rays of the tibia for shin splints and early stages of tibial stress fractures are usually negative. However, over a longer period of time of overuse, there will be some cortical changes on x-ray to indicate a stress fracture. In some cases, an MRI or bone scan can help with diagnosis. Often areas of overuse and point tenderness will light up on these imaging tests. Thanks, Dr. Newhall. Let's move on to another clinical scenario. A nine-year-old male complains of left heel pain several months after starting soccer. Initially, he reported the pain only after activity, but now it is throughout the day. His mother is worried because now he is limping. He denies any known trauma, swelling, or bruising. He does feel that the pain gets better with rest. On exam, there is localized tenderness over his left heel. The remainder of his exam is normal. This is a case of Severs disease, which is another type of apophysitis. 
Remember, as we discussed earlier, apophysitis refers to inflammation around the insertion point of muscle and its tendon around areas of growth in a child or adolescent, and most commonly observed during periods of rapid growth. Severs disease presents with calcaneal pain, also associated with running and jumping. Excess use causes irritation over the growth plate of the calcaneus. The pain can also be bilateral. These kids may also have a tight gastrocnemius muscle, or Achilles. What would you find on exam? On exam for these kids, you'll observe point tenderness over the insertion side of the calcaneus. The squeeze test is also helpful. Basically, cup your hand around the heel and give it a good squeeze over the sides. If the kid jumps off the table in pain, that's a positive test. In regards to treatment, you should recommend modifying activities. These kids will benefit from orthotics and heel pads to cushion their heel. In more severe or chronic cases, immobilization of the ankle is useful to help stop the pull of the Achilles on the open growth plate of the calcaneus. Calf stretches are also helpful. It's important to counsel these patients that recurrent pain is common as long as the growth plate remains open. On the subject of pain from overuse injury in the foot area, we should talk about plantar fasciitis, which is due to inflammation of the plantar aponeurosis or the fibrous tissue beneath the skin on the sole of the foot. That's right, Megan. Plantar fasciitis is more common in adolescents or young adults. Patients, often athletes, will report heel pain with activity that is worse with the first steps of the day or several hours after non-weight-bearing activity. Any activity that places excess stress on the heel with chronic pulling and a tight Achilles, such as running, ballet, or other types of dance, can increase the risk of plantar fasciitis. Diagnosis of plantar fasciitis can be accomplished by medical history and physical examination. Tenderness may be elicited on the medial calcaneal tuberosity. So, just to clarify, Severs disease is due to chronic pulling of the Achilles tendon on the calcaneal apophysis, while plantar fasciitis is associated with repetitive strain or injury that causes micro tears to tissues around the heel of the bone or other connective tissue on the sole of the foot. So, how is plantar fasciitis usually treated? Treatment includes rest from weight-bearing activity. Pain relievers, such as ibuprofen and naproxen, may ease the pain and inflammation caused by plantar fasciitis. Stretching and strengthening exercises or using special devices may also relieve symptoms. Often the cause is due to wearing shoes with inadequate arch support. New shoes or semi-rigid arch supports can decrease the pain. Stretching the calves and plantar fascia is helpful. As long as the gait is not affected, usually these patients can continue with regular activity. However, you should warn patients and parents that complete recovery often takes at least six months. Usually, no tests are necessary. An x-ray or MRI could be performed to make sure another problem, such as stress fracture, is not causing the pain. Dr. Newhall, when should a pediatrician be concerned that the joint pain is more than just an overuse injury? Megan, this is a good opportunity to briefly touch on red flags of joint pain complaints. Signs and symptoms that indicate immediate referral should include a history of significant trauma and evidence of severe local inflammation. Don't forget to ask about other symptoms such as history of fever, weight loss, night pain, malaise, rashes, and refusal or inability to bear weight. These symptoms shouldn't be ignored. That is a good reminder. Dr. Newhall, what about the term growing pains? Yes, growing pains are a real thing. The formal name is actually benign nocturnal pains of childhood. Prevalence is believed to be 10 to 20 percent of children. The exact etiology is unknown. Some believe that these kids have a more sensitive perception to pain. Age of presentation is usually 4 to 10 years old. It's important to note that these are not your adolescents during times of growth spurts. These kids will actually present with pain over the pre-tibial area and thighs, so think in between the joints. Sometimes they'll complain of pain over the axial skeleton or upper extremities, but this is less common. There may be a history of evening or nighttime pain. Parents will describe kids crying and rolling around during bedtime and not wanting to go to bed due to pain. However, just as we discussed, a red flag would be if the pain actually wakes the child up from sleep. 
Usually these kids will wake up in the morning fine with no complaints of daytime pain or discomfort. The pain and discomfort can be worse after excess activity earlier in the day, and heat massage is helpful. You could consider muscle creams, Tylenol and ibuprofen sparingly, such as after a very active day of activity. Growing pains is also a clinical diagnosis with the absence of other concerning features. There may also be a history of other members of the family with similar complaints. You could consider ordering labs, including a CBC, LDH, uric acid, to help rule out concerns of malignancy. X-rays and bone scans are usually not helpful, except when ruling out other causes. Thanks for the overview on overuse injuries in children, Dr. Newhall. In summary, participating in organized and recreational athletics is a great way to combat the growing obesity problem in our youth. However, this puts kids at risk of overuse injuries, which can be less apparent than something like a fracture and can easily go on ignored until it worsens. The important thing to remember is to identify risk of these injuries. Educate the patient and parents regarding minimizing risk of injury and provide recommendations for appropriate treatment to further prevent chronic issues. A good history and physical exam can provide the clinical diagnosis. Rest from activity and modification of technique can be beneficial and minimize further injury. Scheduled anti-inflammatory medication is also helpful. Physical therapy, either formal or informal, will help these children with strengthening and mobility. Thanks, Dr. Newhall, for our discussion today. It was great being here. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. You can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also, remember this podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.